welcome to our round one episode of The People's Game. This week on the show, we've got a very quick round one show and tell, and then we're going to jump into our retro rewind rewatch, there's a tongue twist for you, of the 1970 grand final between Carlton and Collingwood, ahead of those two teams clashing on Thursday night. With me as ever for the show is Gordon Meredith. Gordon, welcome. Thank you very much, JB. You're a bit tired, mate. You're a bit puffed out after a big weekend of footy. You sound a bit flat there. I'm sort of, uh, we're uh, on Zoom today, so I'm also trying to make sure I don't yell through the house on a work day for uh, some of my housemates. But uh, no, I'm up and about. It was a good weekend of footy. Um, but Mondays for me is a day off work, tend to take a bit of a slower pace. So I'm just really uh, getting myself into the uh, invigorated vibes we need for this show. Lovely, lovely. Just nice, calm, relaxed. Enjoying what we do. Like, lovely to hear it. We kind of got Zen JB today. Too good, Richmond. They were challenged tonight by an emerging Carlton outfit, but when the rips were really cracking, they're just too good. So, speaking of Zen JB, uh, there was no Zen about Thursday night at the MCG. Uh, what was your opening night of the AFL men's season like, Gordo? Well, I want to flip that question back on you because every year you do the same thing. And I think regular listeners of the show would know this is that you are, for lack of a better term, a Richmond Nuffy. And so we've been through the five stages of grief and denial with, with you when, when we lost uh, Alex Rance. And so now you're doing the same thing just about the season. Obviously, you had the, the lovely COVID antidote that was a Richmond Premiership last year in 2020. And now we're coming into a new season and everything that brings all the uncertainty, you, you have all of that now. And so you went through the whole, how good's footy's back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The boys, let's wear all my merch. Let's wear the Carlton draft stuff. Let's wear my league tees, whatever it is that you chose on that day. What badges do I wear? Badge, you know, badge magic, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go into your whole, oh, we're cooked. Carlton will beat us, obviously. We're no good this year. We're going to be terrible. Oh my God. And then you take a deep breath. You try and be Zen JB and you say things that like don't make a lot of sense. Like suddenly Harry Mackay is, is a, is a thug. He's a bludgeoner. He's a, he's a sniper, which he said during the game. And then we win and everything's great. And all of a sudden Richard come with the flag again and it's all over and call the season off. And um, Carlton's obviously going to finish top four as well. How good they play, but Richard's obviously way better. And then you just fully commit to the rest of the weekend with a full gusto of a team, knowing that your team has won. So now you can enjoy everything else. And now it all starts over again. So that's obviously why you were flat because you roll, you ride this roller coaster that is footy weekend, week out, very hard. So, so good luck to you. Got another. 27 odd weeks of it left. It's a character. It's a character. You are not a method actor, my friend. It's, it's, I snap out of it. It's nice when you're on a Thursday because then the rest of your weekends relax. And like speaking of Harry Mackay being a sniper, that's wrong because the guy can't kick straight. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. So, so did you so actually think that Carlton were going to beat you at any stage? Uh, yes, a few of them. Because um, they were pretty good. So I thought, um, until we kind of had the twin 50-metre penalties, uh, the game and the thing was on a bit of a knife edge. And then after Mackay was running into that open goal and got run down by Jaden Short, I thought um, it was written in a few match reports that Carlton should have regained the lead at that point, and they never did. Um, 
so that was, you know, maybe it was justice, but that was kind of where I felt started to feel gradually more comfortable. But, you know, they were within a goal with, you know, not that long to play and Richmond kicked the last three goals of the game to win by what looked like a kind of a safe margin. I mean, the night itself was, so we went for a little pregame feed at um, Tipler and Co right across the road from the G in East Melbourne. So they do like a little pre footy tapas meal. And then we were at ground level. Um, so we're actually, we were row B, which is now the front row because row A doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so that was kind of novel. Um, but what did happen is we had a, a front row seat to the Harry Mackay bludgeoning show. So we had time in that incident early in the game um, where Carlton kicked the ball downfield. Uh, the whistle went. Harry Mackay had time to look up, look at the look at where the ball had come from, see that the umpire had blown a free kick, nearly stop, and then decide that he wanted to put Nick Vlossen into next Christmas. Um, you know, we may have done some yelling over the fence. I say we, I may have done some yelling over the fence. Um, but, you know, I feel vindicated in, in retrospect because uh, he got his comeuppance. Which is what you want. Justice was served, you know. And you got the win, you got the justice, you got everything you wanted out of that night. How did it feel to be back at the G, though, in general? What was the in-match experience? Because last week that was our number one concern. Was post-COVID football going to be the same as pre-COVID football? Well, atmospherically, I thought Thursday was pretty good because people being spaced out at the G, there was kind of still a fairly even spread of noise. But without like all of those annoying things about going to the footy when there's 95,000 people there, so not being able to move in and out easily, people everywhere around you, it was kind of nice, to be honest. Like it was a little bit spaced out. But I thought the vibes were good. And I don't normally watch footy from from ground level, but I did enjoy um, being at that vantage point. Um, it kind of did give a bit of a, a perspective on the new rules because um, you kind of do get a sense for how much space the man on the mark can close down or used to be able to close down from that vantage point. Um, And in a game like Thursday, which I thought was, you know, for a round one game, reasonably good quality and the ball pinged around a lot. um, I thought you could see a noticeable difference. Um, I think the, the sort of ongoing part of this conversation will be how that kind of converted to other viewing experiences across the weekend. Yeah, and it's too early to tell if these rules work, et cetera, et cetera. Round one's always crazy. Round one, we always get excited that footy is fixed. And then by round 11, footy's broken and we need to fix it again. So who knows? Who knows what will happen? But so long as you enjoyed it, that's all that matters. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we won. So it's, you know, to be honest, it was a pretty, uh, for a round one clash, it was nice of Carlton to um, offer something in, in simple terms. Um and it was also nice to have a relatively front row seat at the Dusty show. Mm. Speaking of Dusty, if you had to associate Dusty with an animal, what animal would that be? So I don't know whether you've read this column. Your question suggests probably not, but um, Jonathan Horn wrote a column for The Guardian in, I think it was 2019, comparing Dustin Martin to a crocodile. I think he called him a crocodilian menace. There you and go. That's kind of where my immediate brain would go. Because, like, there's kind of a, the mixture of, yeah, maybe a crocodile's all brute strength, but, like, mm. he, and there's also something a bit reptilian about his tattoos. I don't know, I don't know why that, that, like, correlation is in my brain, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, that checks out. So I was watching, we were watching it together, myself and my partner in our lovely Elwood abode, the people's home. And uh, what we came up with actually, what she came up with was a shark. So apparently everything from the mohawk to the running style, to his elusiveness, his, his fluidity in his running style and his, like, the ability that yeah, he uses to shimmy his hips, it's all very shark-like. And then obviously when he strikes, he strikes. But when he doesn't, you don't notice him. So you don't see him coming. But when he arrives, you're, it's too late. You're dead. You're gone. <laughs> he's powerful. He's strong. He's a little bit scary um, and doesn't do much. But when he does do it, he makes it count. So... The shark is now Dusty's new nickname. It's a pretty good analogy. I think um, Justin Lepich, I think, went on Crunch Time on the weekend and talked about, you know, he's always wants to be in that 20-meter space around the ball and then something can happen from there. And we, like, saw a bit of that. I think the thing that probably gets underestimated, and this is maybe why the shark is a really good analogy, is uh, from where we were sitting, you get a real feel for how athletic the foot the footwork is their change of direction and how subtle that is and how quickly it throws tackles off. And I think when, with Dusty, you probably get such a focus on brute strength and don't argues and throwing people off that you probably don't realise that he's actually pretty light on his feet and very, very mobile around the contest anyway. Um, but you don't really get that on TV. And obviously we've watched so much footy on TV in a long period. That sort of able to, you know, being there really gives an ability to, to appreciate um, different aspects of the game. Um, visually and aesthetically. So the Bulldogs are going to run out winners by 16 points in round one and a cracking start by the Dogs. So you went on Friday night. That was your big evening out. We did. We did. And the first Friday night in a long time, Friday night footy, how good. The vibes were up and about. From the, we got went down to uh, get a cheeky burger at, at Ziggy's on Carlisle Street, and uh, that was it was a little bit of a hum. Obviously, Carlisle Street in Ballard Club is not the you know the the hotbed of footy fandom, but we caught the seventy eight tram up uh, Chapel Street, and as you got closer and closer to Richmond, the intensity of footy fandom increased. But so did the good vibes. So um, the mullet is in the the Bazlinka mullet. The Western Bulldogs trademark mullet is in across everyone under the age of 22 and everyone that has paid more than $200,000 to play football professionally. They're like the two exclusive groups of the long manicured mullet. And so a group of eight mulleted men or boys that were probably like first-year uni students jumped on our tram, all good vibes, scarves, no beanies because it need to show off the mullet, obviously. Uh, Button-up shirts, because obviously MCC members, how good, how nice, must be nice. Anyway, our tram had some uh, issues with its door and these lovely lads became our new door conductors, just uh, manually opening, closing the door for the tram driver. It was all great lols. We made the pilgrimage down Swan Street to go to the MCG. We sat behind the goals on level two, thanks to your lovely partner for hooking up with the tickets. And then from there, we saw a purple sunset. It was just everything that was good about the tangential culture of football, you know, it wasn't quite any jasmine in the air because it's not September, but other than that, it was all there. The the walk, the buskers, old men talking cliches on the way there, families, kicks in the park. It felt like old times, except for when you got in and then the half the half the stadium is empty and it's still a sellout. That part I'm like, oh, I'm not like you. Like sellouts should be sellouts. Like let's, I should have to wait. 20 minutes in the queue for the chips. That's just how it is. That's just footy. So yeah. I'm so used to that. It was half empty instead of half full for you. Yeah. 
yeah, everything else, it was a half full experience, just a half empty MCG. But the actual game was okay. Once the first bounce went, I was like, oh, actually, this is not the best game of footy I've ever seen. But it doesn't matter. That's not, it's, what it was about was going to the footy and enjoying the experience that is football and regardless of the actual football being played. And one of our narratives this year was going to be the Buckley story and also the Collingwood story, like the on-field retribution. Can they fix their off-field by on-field results? No, they can't. Not if they play like that because they had, I don't know what's happening, but when they went quickly and played modern football, there's a fair few analogies actually from the 1970 grand we're about to rewatch and this game. So the Carlton of that game is the doggies. And they were mental. If we think that Richmond has like trademarked chaotic football, the Bulldogs said, let's all do a tab of acid and play Richmond style football. It was silly. And like handball, 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 Rombarassi style, they were handballing at 30 meters laterally. When like you could take a simple kick, no, 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 we'll just handball across three channels of players and get it out wide. And then they'll get tackled because obviously they can't mark it because it's at handball. So why do we do that? I don't know, but we did it. Keep going. Just keep going forward. So that's what they did at a rate of knots. And then Collingwood did the exact opposite. Collingwood played how Collingwood would play in the 1970 grand final. Like kick it, mark it, look around, see what's going on, kick it, mark it. They did a little bit better of not, not kicking it to like four and fours, but that's just modern footy. But that was, yeah, odd. Very odd football from both sides. So... One of the hypotheses about this year is that it will make the fast teams faster and the slow teams slower because the man on the mark will just allow you to play keepings off for, for mm. forever if you want. Like it, it definitely really did that. It, easier. it definitely and did so, that. So, yeah, I'm almost tempted to rewatch that game um, purely for the aesthetics, although it doesn't sound like it was too much of a spectacle in the end. So one takeaway from the game though, JB, is that I saw the weirdest stress habit and I think this happens a lot. People have stress habits. You have badge magic. Some people sit in the same seat. Some people, if they're watching on telly, can't move until the game goes back into the lead. Like superstitions or weirdness or little ticks or, you know, biting fingernails. They're all normal things. But what is the weirdest stress habit you've ever seen or heard of when it comes to viewing your team? So you're not involved. You're just, you're an you're a audience member. You're a watcher of them. So this is not footy related but I think it counts. So when I was on a small plane on the Torres Strait, I got on and the planes up there run like, they operate like buses. Mm -hmm. So you land on different islands and then you get back up. So you can take off and land in a 25 minute journey three times. I got onto one of these planes. There was a guy that read the Bible without like his attention moving from the page for the entire trip. And that's probably the biggest stress tick I've ever seen. There you go. Not fully related so at all. What actually happened. So this person was not no, reading their Bible. Tangential. Completely tangential. Obviously, pie and sauce, football classic. So the uh, one of the ladies behind us comes back with a pie and sauce, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, pie and sauce. Get it in you. How good. Then whips out another four sauces. And I was like, oh, pie and, pie and lots of sauce, each to their own. Eats the pie, one sauce used. Four sources left over. She was a Collingwood supporter, so every time the Bulldogs would kick a goal, she would just neck a little bit of sauce straight in a very stressful manner. So she was stress-eating, stress-shotting tomato sauce 
out of the sachet. And I think she was like, I reckon we're in trouble tonight, so I might need one sachet of sauce per quarter. And she did. And then she left early. So either she ran out of sauce or she just had said enough. But, yeah, that was, it was weird. Because I could see it out of the corner of my eye and I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's a little bit of sauce left over. That's normal. And then, like, half an hour later, she's still stressed neck and sauce. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's odd. That's odd. So I've got a question for you yes. in response to that. Have you ever tried sucking one of those sauce dispensers that they have at the footy? Yeah, the little squeezy ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever that's tried sucking it, one of them? That's what she's doing. Yeah, but have you ever tried it? No. It's immensely satisfying. Like, I've done that. Well, there you go. Like, Apparently, this might be a thing. This might be a regular person thing. Like, occasionally as a child, you would get, like, three of them, put one of them on your pie, and then suck the other two. There you I, go. Like, it's... It's oddly satisfying. So I feel like you're trying to stitch this poor woman up and actually footy fans everywhere have been, been sucking sauce, having a fair suck of the sauce bottle for a long time. <laughs> fair suck of the old sauce sachet, I suppose. Yeah. No, that, that's a thing. I've done that. So I don't know. Yeah. There you go. That's Listeners, let us know if you like to suck on the sachet. It's a Melbourne win at the MCG, 11-14-80 to the Dockers, 18-58. The Demons by 22 points. And then Saturday, you went back for more. Well, I went back for more. And there was only one other game at the MCG after Thursday, Friday. So I was like, right, I'm going to go to another game at the MCG where I'm actually going to get a ticket. It basically has to be Melbourne and Frio. So I did. I drove to the G. I paid $10 for parking. It was a beautiful sunny day. Lots of families, lots of kids sat on the ring, sorry, on the wing, row F. I had a pre-game pie and chips. I didn't actually get extra sauce on this occasion, just in case anyone's wondering. That'll cost me $9, which is a big plus. And then the game started. <laughs> and this was like everything I probably thought about Melbourne just in one football match so they essentially won simply because they had better chess pieces Hmm. they got three goals up very early they couldn't get any further in front because Frio kind of dug in a little bit and Melbourne to be honest didn't really use the ball well enough to warrant being further in front and it just became this kind of drab Frio had no ability to spread or move the ball the guy that was taking the kickouts whoever it was basically kept just nearly taking all the time that was available to him and getting forced to play on because he didn't know where to go. Um, so they won contested ball by 11 and eight, uh, clearances by eight for Rio, um, but they took seven marks inside 50 for the day. So it was just one of those performances where it was just like they'd win the ball, they couldn't spread it, so they'd dump kick it, and then they had no tools. So they basically had Tabata and then no one else. If five went forward, he got Stephen May, so he was pretty ineffective. So it was just kind of like, oh, let's just watch Jake Lever take intercept marks all day. And then... I think the, the, the frustrating part of that was like, if you're Melbourne, pretty much got everything you wanted in this game. Like you got your intercept markers taking marks and then you should have been able to transition the ball effectively back to front on and on and on time and time again. And they just weren't clean enough to do that. So it was one of those days where like Frio were really, really, really disappointing. And then like you kind of walked away being like, I didn't learn anything about Melbourne. Melbourne hmm. beat average sides regularly. That's what they've been doing for four seasons um which i guess really puts a strong emphasis on their performance against st kilda next 
Saturday because I kind of walked away from this just being like, uh, and then as, as, as kind of a summary of the whole weekend, like having a couple of new rules isn't going to stop there being bad footy. Like Thursday night was good footy because there were good players and good teams who were willing to take the game on and have the skills to do it. But where those factors don't exist, we're still going to get some pretty drab games. Or hmm. not even, it wasn't like it was enjoyable and there was some good individual stuff, but like tactically it was just an absolute like foregone conclusion basically. I mean, it didn't dampen the vibe that much because I left and then uh, obviously as I was leaving, found out that Adelaide were slowly murdering the cats, which mm. having used making their mark as a framing piece for this footy season was kind of like, I was like, ah, yes, it's real. The doco didn't lie to me. Um, and then we kind of got the Essendon clusterfuck on Saturday night, which was funny for everyone that's not an Essendon supporter, basically. <laughs> Okay, I'm biased, but many footy fans reckon the 1970 Grand Final was the best ever played. Certainly drew the biggest crowd in history, 121,000. It featured the biggest fight back in a Grand Final. And it had the game's two most popular teams, Carlton and Collingwood, slugging it out for Premiership honours. The best ever? Well, I'll let you be the judge. As coach of Carlton, I knew we were faced with a dramatic afternoon. Collingwood had been the super team of the season. They'd won 18 of 22, finished top of the ladder and beaten us by 10 points in the second semi-final. In Peter McKenna, they had a full forward who'd kicked 137 goals going into the game and seemed to relish playing Carlton. In the second semi-final alone, he'd kicked nine. The Magpies had fine big men in Len Thompson and Jerker Jenkins, a gifted centre line in Dean Price and Greening, a truly inspirational player in Des Tudnam and match winners in the Richardson brothers. Well, perhaps we shouldn't have turned up. Collingwood is a fine unit, well coached by Bobby Rose and a team out to make for grand final losses in 60, 64 and 66. And what about Carlton? We'd won 16 and lost six and had a great side. The first ruck of Nichols, Silvani and Gallagher was as good as any in the league, up forward Alex Jezzelenko would be the first blue to kick 100 goals in a season. Walls and Mackay were great marks and in Brent Croswell, the unpredictable but brilliant match winner. Much had been written and talked about this game. The use of handball to get Carlton out of a particularly nasty situation. The emergence of a young reserve named Teddy Hopkins late in the day. Sure, Carlton were down 44 points at half time and had to fight like crazy to get up and win, but this game had so much to offer. So the second part of our episode, Gordon, the 1970 grand final, very, very storied, arguably, and I'm not saying that we're arguing this, I'm just saying that some other people on this earth argue that this is the greatest game of AFL or VFL or Australian rules football. Call it what you want. This is the greatest game ever played. Give me in 30 seconds your recap of this almighty schmozzle. Well, because this game is shrouded in myth, I'm going to give you two myth quotes that best explain this game because this game does not need a statistical summary. Everyone knows what happened in this game. But so first, from Martin Flanagan, sport is drama. Occasionally, it tilts over and becomes something more. What happens is that the memory of an event acquires a life of its own and goes careering down the years, unstoppable, ruthlessly redefining itself. 
in the public memory. And what is that public memory, JB? The public memory is this, that this game was the birth of modern football. It had the largest crowd in Australian sporting history. It had contained the mark of the century, the most imitated moment in sports commentary on Australian soil, the greatest halftime comeback in the history of the VFL, AFL, and the most iconic sporting footage in Australia that has been filmed in black and white television. And of course, it was the birth of the thing called the Collie Wobbles. My first question was whether in the 70s they played Auskick Mark rules where you just had to get two hands to the ball. Football in 1970 does not look like football. I Actually, this is a very scathing. Again, regular listeners know that I'm not the biggest fan of old football and uh, this, was, this was no different. But this was my summation uh, three minutes into the first quarter of this, the greatest game of football we've ever seen. Uh, this feels like a shit game of rugby union. Kick an up and under to two on twos. Kick a long bomb to the oppo. Mark one and kick it for the sticks. That's all that happened in the first quarter is that you get the ball, you kick it long, you chase it from a scrum, you knock it forward, you kick it long, you take a mark, you kick a goal, you probably miss it, kick a drop punt. It, it felt like the game commentary, if it wasn't in like a text blog form, would feel like spider bait song footy footy, kick a long bomb, kick, kick a drop punt, take a mark, take a specky, kick a long bomb, kick a drop punt, take a mark, take a specky. Like... <laughs> It's it, and the fact that this game apparently contains the most phenomenal and nuanced coaching moment of the sport's history is also a fallacy that we'll get into later because there is no coaching in this. It is literally just tall guys, yep, you're in the middle, take the tap, yep, short guys, you're under there, tall guys, yep, cool, cool. Whenever you get the ball, don't look, don't look up, don't look down, don't look sideways. You just shove that ball on your foot and kick it as long as possible. And then the commentators will say things like, oh, that's a good kick. That went real long. That's a direct quote from Ted Whitten. It wasn't good footy, but that's okay. I wasn't expecting good football. Well, and we spoke a little bit last year when we did a couple of these about the complete lack of sophistication in coaching for the best part of 100 years. So the folklore story of this match is essentially that Carlton changed the game forever. So they, they're 44 points down at halftime. They get into the rooms and Ron Barassi basically just says, we have to handball at every opportunity. We have to play on at every opportunity. We have to take the game on. We can't buggerise around with the ball. Now, to this point, um, footy had been getting away a little bit from being a kick mark, kick mark, kick mark game, which it had kind of been for, for 60 or 70 years. And this has kind of become allegedly the symbolic moment in that transition. So after this day, like we never went back to not handballing and not playing on is, is kind of how the folklore story reads. And that's not entirely true slash true at all. So if you, if you do a bit of a statistical deep dive on the game, Carlton don't actually play on significantly more in the second half. They definitely don't handball significantly more in the second half either. What they do change, however, is where they handball. And so Richmond, the current Richmond team, the 2020 Richmond team has the tap on, like always get the ball going forward. That's the change. So people had been handballing in 1970, 1969, the late 1960s, but only when you got tackled, like the, like the current like midfielders, your bottom pellies, your pendles, get one out over the top of your head. They were doing that you know, along the ground or whatever, or you handball sideways because you're going to get smothered. But this is the first time you really saw, you know, concerted effort to be like, let's handle it forwards. 
get it up over the top, get it moving, get it down the line, doggy style, Richmond style, that kind of that kind of game or even of, from the current like era. To an overlapping player. So like that's where like even in this game, just in every like sport from rugby to hockey, the idea of having an overlapping runner who you give a short handball to or a short pass to exists. Mm. It's, it it is just it is like bread and butter. But the fact that that didn't really I want to find the footy from 1950 where that didn't exist and no one going clocking that maybe that would be. Well, that would be the first quarter. That would be the first quarter of this game, JB. Well, the first two quarters of this game. Well, the the handball numbers like didn't change dramatically. I know the numbers have been run by someone on AustralianRulesFootball.com and they did play on 13 times in the third quarter. They only played on five times in the first half. But then the only thing that sticks out about this is it's not this is not written as a play on percentage. It's just written as how many times they played on because they mm. didn't take many marks in the first half. And the biggest statistical difference in the second half was that Carlton took like 24 contested marks. They took nine in the first half, which mm. actually gives you some sense of like, well, you have to mark the footy to be able to be in a play on situation, basically. And we said the same thing about the 19... 19- 89 round six game between Geelong and Hawthorne, which was the highest scoring in comparison to the 1989 grand final, that basically it felt like you were just rolling a dice. So if you won the center bounce and kicked it long and took a mark, then you'd kick a goal. And so the only, there were like three elements of luck in this game that all went Collingwood's way, well, not all, but mostly went Collingwood's way in the first half and then all went Carlton's way in the second half. And so basically Collingwood winning a lot of center clearances in the first half getting a lot of entry kicks and taking contested marks or open marks inside where the arc would be, but doesn't exist in these days. And then they just didn't kick enough goals. They, they kicked really poorly for goal. And then the opposite, Carlton kicked really well for goal. And in the second half, they got more center clearances and they kicked it long and took more contested marks. But it was just, too, it's, it's just luck. So eventually, if you keep rolling the dice, the dice are weighted the same. These are all 50-50 events. A 50-50 clearance is a contested, and most of the time it comes out at 50-50. If you kick it to a contested mark, two-on-two, one-on-one, that's usually a 50-50 contest unless the player is outstandingly better than the other player. And then, we've, as we've seen over the history of football, even kicking a set shot for goal is a 50-50 concept. And so basically all that needed to happen for Carlton to get back into this game if Collingwood doesn't change their tactics is time. And the only thing that changed in this game was how long it was being played for. And then they got back into the game and then they won. Like... Because Carlton, it's like because Collingwood didn't change anything. If they had said we're forty-four points up, maybe let's flood the back line, they would have won. Mm. Yeah. If they said let's play and possession think- football, they would have won. If they had done anything differently in this game, they would have won. That's true, and I think the great myth as well is that this was all Ron Barassi's doing. So it's credited by. Barassi himself. Um, so Martin Flanagan, you read an excerpt of his at the start. So that's from his book on this match. And it, Barassi in that book says several times that it was Len Smith, the Fitzroy coach in the 1960s, who basically encouraged the modern use of handball. Because that's the thing that stands out to me is if you kind of take centre bounce as a crapshoot, there's that element to it. And then the second part of this that it, is that if Collingwood actually kick straight in the first half, they're probably 65 points up because Carlton are literally nowhere for the first quarter and a half of the game. Mm. If Collingwood kicks out in the first half, this is going to be like this will be the biggest grand final defeat ever. It would have would have surpassed Geelong versus Port Adelaide. And then I guess the only thing that I would say is I agree that there's an element of luck in all of this, but 
Carlton come out after halftime. They kick seven goals in 10 and a half minutes, not 10 and a half minutes of playing time, 10 and a half minutes of real, you know, Greenwich mean time. Yeah, actual, actual minutes. Yeah. It's, it's literally like centre bounce goal, centre bounce goal, centre bounce goal. And that just happens for, set, for, for 10 and a half minutes until they're basically two points down and then they nearly bottle it. Well, they don't bottle it though. There's, there's, you can't bottle it if you are just playing a game of random chance, which is what both sides are doing. Like Bob Ross is an article in The Age when it was uh, last year during the, the 50th year celebrations and basically Bob Ross apologises to the key leadership group of the Collingwood side for saying like, I bottled that game. We should have won that grand final. I'm really sorry. And they say, yeah, no worries. We did. We all did it together. But it's like, why didn't one person, just one person think, let's do something differently? Like, how many goals do you have to concede in a row before you change something? They changed nothing for the whole game. Nothing changed. I still find it staggering because there was no 666. There was no restrictions on the amount of men that you could put back. Christ, there was not even like the centre bounce being limited to four people. There was no centre square for Christ's sake. So you could literally put your whole team at the back of a centre bounce stoppage to stop Mm. it exiting the front of the stoppage. Like you literally had unlimited choice about where you positioned your chess pieces Um, and nothing, yeah, nothing changed. That's probably the, the first like major takeaway but what so like in the context of the game Carlson get within two points after that streak and then Collingwood kick back out so they're 17 points up at the final break so you're still kind of looking at the game and being like Collingwood should should still win from 17 points up at three quarter time like they've still got the opportunity to come in and tactically not allow the seven goal streak to happen again and that is obviously that's us being tainted with the responsibility of of modern football because that's what you would do. And that's why I look at comparing and contrasting to the modern game. That's why Essendon's 40-point calamity on the weekend is even more embarrassing is because they they know what to do now. You, you just don't let the team kick eight goals in a quarter and then you win the game of football. But so Collingwood doing it in 1970 is, is almost, you know, excusable. It happens. But what I'd say is that when they get 17 points in front by the third, by the uh by three quarter time, that's that's proof of nothing. As I said, that's just proof that this game is random, because you just have to keep rolling more dice. That's you're not changing the variation of the dice, not changing the probabilities, you're not changing the weight. You're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. The only time they change where those players are positioned in any stage of the game, like dead ball, live ball, ball up, center bounce, whatever, is at the very end where Jezza kicks the dribbler to go ahead by eleven points. There's no one in the goal square. That's the first time all game that there's no one in the goal square. And the, so Bob Ross, fi- Bob Rose, sorry, not Bob Ross. Bob Ross is the American painter paid by numbers guy. Uh, Bob Rose <laughs> finally decides to change something with like two minutes left. He's like, I'm desperate now. Let's let's get up the field and try and get a goal. Turnover, Jezza kicks a dribbler for 30 metres or 30 yards and, and, they win, and, they, and they steal the game. And like, that would have confirmed then. It's that confirmation Malcolm Gladwell style analysis that like oh, I changed one thing once and it didn't work, therefore we should change nothing ever. And that's what we would have done. And then and then they would then they would then they were stuffed. Collingwood didn't win anything for thirty six years. So an alternate take on what you've just said, 
if you want to kind of buy into the myth for a minute. And you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm Gladwell has the whole pull the goalie phenomenon, right? Mm. Which is essentially in ice hockey, everyone pulls their goalie with two minutes left. You should actually do it with like five minutes left when you're a goal down, which means that you're very likely to get completely blown away and pants, but you're unlikely, or you're sorry, you're statistically more likely to actually get back into the game. So another read on Barassi, if you kind of believe that him imploring his players to handle lots, another read on that is that's untried. Um, it's probably, it could be construed in 1970s football terms as an equivalent of pulling the goalie, even though the numbers don't actually back up that being what happened. Like if you want to, you could kind of argue there was no real, like not a huge amount of coaching, but that was probably like. Except for one. And I think. time, very sophisticated. And again, going back to our round six, 1989 conversation, I think the one thing that coaches did really well back then because they only had actually had substitutes like player in player out you're done for the day was at halftime Barassi brings on cult hero Teddy Hopkins who kicks three and a quarter and changes the game now part of me is like well why didn't he start the game but that's he was apparently just a super sub like he was always a substitute for Carlton and that was his role and he accepted it he was the 19th player but he comes on changes the game so they change something and they get back in the lead so I think the intent to play on plus new fresh player, new look, challenging to the to the Collingwood defence, that was good coaching. So he recognises that something needed to change. And I went back through the archives and the, the actual uh, age 1970 day after report was an interview with Barassi and apparently he was actually meant to keep Thornley on for an extra five minutes. So they said to him, Thornley, go back out there. You've had, you've gone, you've got nowhere near it all day, but we believe in you. You've got five minutes to turn it around. Otherwise, we're swapping you out for Hopkins. And then as they ran out the race, Barassi shouts at the Hopkins, no stuff at Hopkins, you're on. Thornley, you're out. And then he goes out and kicks three goals. Um, so that's the moment. That's the moment. Not handballing forwards or backwards or whatever it is. That's the one thing they did, right? Mm. There's a whole dimension that we don't have in the game now because of the player getting subbed out because and Flanners goes into some detail in his book like Thornley took that like as kind of a mortal wound to be subbed out like you're going so badly that I'm completely going to get rid of you like it was almost like you'd have 16 blokes who would play the whole game but you basically knew if you were getting getting a bath or having a stinker that you were just gone because there were two blokes sitting there and waiting and that's that's kind of the move the only thing I'd say about that and I'm not saying that it's not, you know, obviously something needed to change and that's the ability to change something. But it's kind of like there's still an element of luck. So it's a bit like in cricket when you move a fielder because you think the ball might go there and then it goes there next ball. Like, like yes, you had the insight to see that something might happen. It's very fortuitous that it literally happens next ball. Yeah, but I think it's different in this sense that like a player wasn't getting anywhere near it you replace that player with a player who has the potential to get near it and they get near it. So you've made an appropriate change. I think, yeah, cricket skipperdom is very much overrated in the sense of field placements. When you make a change and the thing happens, the ball, the next over afterwards, I think bowling changes can be more credited with, with captaincy. Field placements are basically random because, and I think Jared Kimber goes into this a lot. It's like batsmen miss time or misplace, you know, 40% of their shots. It's just whether or not one of them goes to hand. So you basically just have fielders equidistant around and 
the ball is more likely to go to them because they cover more space. Unless they have a particular weakness or strength and then you adapt to that, but yeah. So this is kind of a question without notice, but we've obviously now got an injury sub. So... When I I embrace it, I would embrace it. This game made me realise how cool subs can be. Like Ted Hopkins is is a Carlton cult hero because he was the sub. If he had played the whole game and kicked four goals, it's like big whoop. So my question for you is, if you were an AFL coach now, would you pick a certain type of player to be your injury sub? Is there a profile that you would have in that player? Does the current rule mean I only have one extra player? Or can I go soccer style and have eight on the bench and then choose one of those eight? No. So you only get one player. <sighs> there is no one player that you like, – yeah, you just have to pick your next best player, I suppose. And I suppose in the modern-day footy, it has to be a midfielder because they can rotate through the midfield and you can put somewhere back and put somewhere forward. Because like, you don't want to have – there's no panacea player. You can't just have like a two-metre Peter on the bench just in case your current two-metre Peter gets injured. So it kind of has to be your utility player. Can't be a tall player. Can't be a tall. And then, assumedly, if you had like a prototype Adam Good style, you know, really tall bloke who also runs, he's probably not your twenty-third. Yeah, he'd be on the field. Yeah, he's probably not your. So my only question would be whether it would be worth if you were like picking your midfielders picking the most elite runner of the midfielders. Like, so if you had like, oh, there's six mids that aren't in the team, would you just pick the one with the best running numbers because they're going to be able to run a direct opponent off their legs if they do have to come into the second half, for example? Probably. Because my biggest thing, and this kind of reopened this, and I thought this when the sub came in, like if you have an injury and your opposition doesn't, and the injury is like after half time having a late sub when everyone else is cooked is a pretty big advantage. Hmm. Like I could kind of could kind of mount an argument with the injury sub that it should only be for injury in the first half. That's a different discussion. But, you know, if you come on at three-quarter time and you're an elite gut runner with elite running speeds and you're running against blokes who've already run 10K, that's a huge advantage. That's the only way I can think of it in modern footy being exploited to the same extent. True, but we've had nine games already and... No one's really exploited it. Although Oscar McDonald looked particularly good when everyone else was tired for his standards. As a debutant. Yeah. For well, a Carlton debutant. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different discussion. We've got very, very tangential. So the other thing that happened with old mate Ted was he only played one more game for Carlton. And and why not? He's not gonna as I said last week, the Elizabeth Gilbert syndrome. Yes, this week I actually remembered the name of the author who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. The Elizabeth Gilbert syndrome, he achieved his greatest moment. He was always going to be 19th man at Carlton. He kicked three goals in a quarter, four in a grand final, basically won them the game as a super sub. What else, what else could he possibly do for Carlton? If he's, and he's not going to be in their best 18. They've already told him that. Why not? So what did he do? He went on to be a poet and a writer for a bit. He actually um, created his own publishing company called Champion Publishing, and uh, he also went on to found Champion Data. So arguably he's involved in the two biggest changes in modern football. He's involved in the game where 
he won Carlton the game and then that created the myth that handballing is the best way to play footy and that gave the birth of modern football. So thank you, T. Hopkins, for that. And now we have our stats obsession, thanks to Champion Data, which T. Hopkins also invented. So there you go. So the only reason I find the Ted Hopkins discussion interesting is there's actually not a lot on him. A good he's research a, doesn't tell you much. He is a very reclusive character. Having met the person huge, in person, he is a very reclusive character. Oh, have you met? You've met the great Ted Hopkins. I have met the te- great Ted Hopkins because we we did some work with Champion when he was still at Champion, and then we also did some work with a company called Software Ranking, which is a Darren O'Shaughnessy Ted Hopkins. Uh, combined effort because they both basically founded champion together and Ted sports still exists and he still does his kind of statistics and rankings and that kind of stuff. And he does some, uh, some gambling kind of projections and plays around in that field still. So yeah, very interesting person to chat to, but you will struggle to find him on a day-to-day basis. Do you struggle to get him on a podcast? Cause he I'd, sounds like he'd be a ripping guest. He would be a ripping guest. And so maybe we'll reach out to Teddy this year and see if we can get him out of the Ted cave. Might be his, his first public first appearance season. since 1970. Yeah. So we've done a few of these now. Where does this one sit in our pantheon of great games? Great games doesn't rank very highly in my humble opinion. And I know I'll have people yelling at me and nostalgic addicts yelling at me. But if you watch the footy, you watch any game on the weekend from round one, 2021 versus this game. The, the round one games are more entertaining. They've got high levels of skill. They've got more variability. They've got more nuance. They've got more everything. Like this game, even in an era where we think the game goes for too long, every quarter in this game goes over 30 minutes and they're all just doing the same thing for, for two hours. It's two hours straight of the same thing on repeat. That is weird to me. And maybe that's me being a modern day Gen X or whatever I am and, you know, oh, I need variability. I have a short attention span, but it doesn't work for me. So in terms of the greatness of the game, this is not a great game. But in terms of the importance of this game, I think it actually is very important and it's in, it's in, it's easy to appreciate everything. As I said, like if footies, if one element of the footy is the quality of the game and the other element of footy is everything around it, then everything around this game is awesome. Like 121,000 at the MCG. The two that's, Melbourne clubs. That's mental. It's it's pretty enormous. I, so, yeah, I, the actual football, I kind of agree. The event, the occasion, the broader context is all kind of, I think, important in the context of the game, allegedly, and then also 120,000 people. That's wild. But the actual kicking of the ball, a bit shabby. And it's very lucky. The result actually help, helps us. Like is, there is some kind of football deity that has a, you know, if you believe in fatalism, has, written, has pre-written the fate of football that allowed Collingwood to be this kind of flawed superpower. Because if they win this, then they probably win another three in that next five-year period. They have another period of dominance. And then there is no culture of collie wobbles. There is no repeat losses all the way through the 80s and 90s and the 2000s. There's no drawn grand final. There's none of that. And so then Collingwood ends up being on 25 titles and they're like the Manchester United of AFL. And they're just, they are this superpower dominant football. Everything else about football would be different. It probably wouldn't be the AFL. They'd be so dominant that they would just bankroll the VFL by themselves. 
Eddie would be chairman of the AFL. It'd all be very different if Collingwood had won this grand final. So the last question on the agenda, and I've written out Collingwood's grand final losses here, but was whether this is more significant for Carlton or for Collingwood as a match. What's really interesting is, and I've never actually sat down and gone through Collingwood's grand final scores. So in 1960, they get pumped by Melbourne. In 1964, they lose by four points. In 1966, they lose to St Kilda by a point. 1970, they lose by 10 points. 1977, they draw and then lose the replay by 26 points. I can see you scrutinising my maths because I haven't actually written these margins out properly. In 1979, they lose again to Carlton, this time by five points. In 1980, they get belted by Richmond. And then in 1981, they lose by 20 points. So they lose eight grand finals in 21 years around this contest, which pretty much sets up their reputation. Now, the funny thing about Collingwood is the story, and much like any curse, is that when they win in 1990, the collie wobbles are kind of gone, which is just not the case because they've now lost one, sorry, they've won one grand final from five attempts in the national competition. So this is kind of now, this is just an enduring story where like Collingwood winning is now some sort of miracle basically. Because they lost the unlosable. That's, that's a curse that you can't really get rid of. And this is probably a sports thing, like a broader thing because everyone talks about like, oh, this victory makes everything right. But the reason that, like, it's it's strange in Collingwood's context because by the time they actually win a flag in 1990, it's not like anyone from 1970 is playing. So everyone in 1970 is still kicking themselves. They didn't win it in 1970 mm-hmm. when they were 44 points up at halftime. Yeah, you can never rewrite the story of that day. You can't, but I think there's two different groups that, that keep curses alive. And so I think quite literally 1970 destroyed those Collingwood players. Like that destroyed them. And just like 2010 destroyed the St Kilda players, the drawn grand final then. So, but the fan base is a continuum. And so, although the players weren't there from 1970, there's a lot of people that would have seen the 1970 game and then got to 1990 and realized, well, we've still lost eight grand finals. This one grand final doesn't actually change that much. So, when we make the next one, we're more likely to lose and win. It's the fan base that keeps the, that keeps the curse alive. I don't, as I said, look, as we know now, and every year it gets more and more professional. The curse doesn't exist unless the curse is recent. And so I think like losing a grand final the year before is going to be pretty hard to battle on. It's becoming a more prevalent thing with Adelaide and, and the GWS. But I think the fandom is actually what you get. And on a day where there's one hundred and twenty-one thousand at the MCG. And you've already lost a couple of grand finals beforehand and then you're up by 44 and then you're down and then you're up again and then you lose by 10. I think there's a fair few Collingwood fans that from forevermore will be going into it being like, well, it doesn't matter if we, if we finish on top. It doesn't matter if we make it to the grand final. We are a broken club. So I think that that's who keeps this myth alive is Collingwood fans. And if you talk to them, they are always like that when they make a grand final. No Collingwood fan ever approaches a grand final with confidence, even if they truly are the best team in the competition. It's a true week of suffering for them, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's bizarre. And, I mean, so this was Carlton's 10th flag. They've won 16. Um, but I think in terms of actually writing the stories of these two clubs, like it's pretty funny for Carlton because it's like the day you beat the great rival and you not only beat them, but you kind of embarrass them. And, you st- them and, and they stole a flag too. 
They stole this one. They'd lost to Collingwood three times already this season. And they were close and they were competitive, but they lost. So is the closest modern grand final comparison between 70, sorry, between a modern grand final and 70, is the, mo- is the closest comparison 2008, where Geelong don't kick straight? Probably. And should have absolutely murdered a Hawthorne team that ended up beating them. And ironically, it done the opposite way. So Geelong was the handball happy side and Hawthorne relied on kick mark chains to control the pace in Clarko's cluster and that kind of thing. It was all slowing the game down that won them the game, whereas it was all about speeding the game up that won Carlton the game in 1970. There are nice parallels between those two. So well done there, Jay. There's the kick now, down to the half-forward flank. A mark to Gallagher. So next week we are catching up to chat uh, about our first footy book of the year. We will keep you posted during the week on what that will be. Uh, as ever, thank you very much for joining me, Gordon. Uh, I'm going to get you to leave us with a brief round two footy forecast. What are you most looking forward to about the weekend to come? Absolute sliding doors moment will be Carlton Collingwood on Thursday night. So a nice little follow-on from this chat about, you know, the omens and the myths and the things that these two clubs mean to people. This is the year where we could see another sliding doors moment and uh, the white-collar blues become the prominent club and the hard-working pies go back into the doldrums. Uh, otherwise, what else is on this weekend? Um, as you mentioned, St Kilda Melbourne is a very much a litmus test, I reckon, to see whether those, those two clubs mean anything this year in the long term. And... Uh, I'm interested to see about the doggies and the eagles at Marvel, if the chaotic Campbell happy doggies can take on the slow kick-marking eagles. Another another one for Moddy Foot and Tacticians, or maybe Ron Barassi to uh, shine upon his goodwill amongst the doggies on Sunday afternoon. All right, well, that pretty much wraps us up. Looking forward to Thursday night and what I think will be a win for the Blue Baggers. We'll see you next week.